So today is the second in um, in my message series about reclaiming your amateur status. And if you remember from last week, if you were here and if you weren't here, I'll tell you right now. Amateur is not about being unpaid. Amateur is not about being unskilled. It's not about being unrecognized, unsupervised, any of that kind of stuff. Amateur is related to the word ama, the Latin heart, love. Te amo, sometimes it's said. Being amateur is about this. I talked about last week when we talked about recapturing beginner's mind. It's about refinding, recovering, rediscovering our native capacities for awe and joy and openness. Retaining that part within us that refuses to say yes to the trap of simply living by rote. Of simply seeing the world as somehow an obvious place and saying, been there, done that, and that's it. When we live as an amateur, we allow our lives to express a deeper, more full devotion. This is the way the great poet Rumi put it. And it gives the title for today's message. Let the beauty you love be what you do. There are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. I'll repeat that. Let the beauty you love be what you do. There are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Now, those thousand ways and actually... There's quite a lot more than a thousand ways. They're a blessing, but they're also a challenge. They're a blessing because we're here in a community, in a tradition that doesn't say there is just one way to express our devotion, just one way in that beautiful image to kneel and kiss the ground. And even we'll be a little forgiving with you if you say, ugh, kneeling, kissing the ground, I'm not quite there yet. That's all right. We'll give you time to grow into it. But it's a challenge as well, too, because the choices are so many in this life. Because flourishing, like flowers, comes in many, many, almost infinite variety of stripes and colors. As the economists tell us, there is an opportunity cost. In a moment, to doing one thing, we cannot simultaneously do another. And so the more important question in our tradition, and here today for all of you and all of us, is this. Not to focus on the thousand ways, or on the more than thousand ways that you can understand and live out the beauty that you love. But to focus, not theoretically, but practically, what are your ways? What is your way right now in your life of expressing with your actions, with your heart, with your hands, the beauty that you love? I believe that finding and practicing the beauty that you love is absolutely essential for a full and flourishing spiritual life. And sometimes... It is absolutely essential for life itself when life feels as if it might not go on or might be threatened. How many of you know a classic, classic text by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning? Have you ever read that? It's about his recounting of his time when he was in the concentration camps. And it's also about what he learned, about what he understood about who human beings are at their worst and also at their best. After his survival in the first part of the book, Frankel talks about those people he found even in the camps. Yes, who still could affirm something beautiful and shared it in love. He said these were people who were able to retain even in the midst of this God awful, awful situation, something of even a place of freedom. Still, finally, there was a spiritual choice left to them. He said he found it in those who had kept in their minds simply maybe just a stanza of Beethoven and were able to sing it over and repeat the melody 
over and over again so that they could remember that there was something decent still in this life. He saw it in those in the hands of those who practiced kindness, who, although they themselves were on the brink of starvation, always found a way to share the bread that they had with their bunkmates. This is the beauty that we love practiced in what we do, even in the midst of a hell on earth. Most of us cannot imagine, and hopefully none of us will ever have to experience anything this extreme and dreadful. And so for us, in some ways, perhaps the stakes are not as high, and that might cause us to think we can maybe slip around this question, not answer it, just an average, normal, everyday life. The question may not be death and life, but it is depth in life when we can answer this question of the beauty that we love and commit to it in our doing. The challenge for us, just in every normal day, average time, is what Thoreau captured in one of his most famous sayings. He said, most of us, unfortunately, and you can judge whether he's right or not from your own experience, most of us live lives of quiet desperation. Not practicing or living the beauty that we love expressed in what we do. When I think of this phrase, living the life of quiet desperation, I think actually of one of the most famous movies of all time. And how many of you have seen Citizen Kane? Well, Citizen Kane, all that wealth, all that power Charles Foster Kennedy had, and still dying, and in fact living before he was dying, in loneliness and isolation. For what were his last words? Rosebud, the mystery that sets the whole motion picture in motion, and that is never answered within the movie, but we see at the end. Rosebud, the simple childhood sled that remained his favorite thing. At the end of this life of all this wealth and all this power and all this achievement, still what he yearned for at his end was something so simple. The tragedy is that he lost the beauty that he loved. At the end, all he wanted to do was to go back to the beginning. And we see that it is tragic because Rosebud goes unrecognized on the fire with so many of the rest of his possessions at the end of that movie. See what Charles Foster Kane can tell us, what the dying can teach us, what all those who have to live or are living in a situation of extremity and don't have the choice not to pay attention, what they teach those of us who are just living average, everyday life, they teach of us is don't wait. Don't wait for some moment, someday, somehow, somewhere. Right here and right now is the moment to start asking the question, what is the beauty that you love and how is it expressed in what you do? Now, because our tradition has so many expressions and validates so many expressions of human flourishing, it is not my job, and I wouldn't want it to be my job, to tell you what your ways must be, because that would cheat you out of the experience, and I wouldn't know enough anyway. So I'm not going to tell you what the ways or the sizes or the shapes of flourishing are today. I cannot tell you and don't want to tell you the beauty that you love. But what we're going to talk about today is how we might together... Figure it out, how you might come to some of those conclusions. The first starts with this, and it is deceptively simple. Because it is so simple, it is deceptive. 
if you are struggling with this question to be able to name the beauty that you love and it doesn't find expression in what you do. And by the way, if you can't answer that question clearly and honestly and openly, as my ancestors say, mazel tov. That's a blessing. That's a blessing in who you are in this world, and that's a blessing upon other people as well. But if you're having trouble answering this question today, the first thing I want to invite you to do is find a way of observing yourself. Observing yourself in the same way when a master carpenter approaches a piece of unformed wood and is going to turn it into something beautiful, a chair, a table, a work of art. They don't just dive right in. They understand what that wood looks like. They search for its grain. They want to see what that wood really is. Similarly, and whether the story is apocryphal or not, I don't know, because it comes from the TV show Lost. And as far as I'm concerned, anything that's ever on the TV show Lost is automatically true. <laughs> so you know where I'm going from. This is a story about Michelangelo, who for months, for four months, sat in front of an uncarved 18-high-foot block of marble. Day after day after day, went to his studio and just... Seemingly sat there. And one day he was asked, and he responded in the Italian, which I don't know, but it translates into, Michelangelo, what are you doing? And he said, I am working. Working through observing. And eventually that 18-foot-high, imagine it. Imagine this hundreds of years ago. 18-foot-high block of uncarved marble became the David. This was the beauty of that he loved and the beauty that he expressed. But first, only through observation, not rushing in, not saying I know how automatically. It's the same way with trying to discern the shape of our spirits. We need to observe. We need to listen. We need to find those basic places in which the recognition can happen, sometimes in very, very small ways. For me, it's a little embarrassing, but I've told some of you about it before anyway. But I will tell you where I get my best spiritual practice done, where I have the best place to recognize myself, and I'm not just talking in the physical sense here. It's in the shower. I can't, although I would try, I swear, if they'd give it to me to bring my Blackberry in there. But I can't. And so when I'm in the shower, there's not much else I can do. I'm actually able to focus. I'm actually able to observe myself day after day after day and perhaps see the shape of my soul that it is taking shape. When we find those simple places, when we find those things that we might think are so obvious that we don't pay attention to them, but really, really go deeply into them, we can avoid what some neurologists call dual task interference. Basically, it's this. When we multitask, we are not operating optimally. Doesn't matter how much you think you are, maybe you've become a little expert at it, but really doing one simple thing is better than doing many things all at once. And discovering the privilege of solitude, the privilege of being silent again, so silent that we might hear ourselves. This is why we're offering the silent retreat for those of you who are interested later on in October. I'm going to be talking more about that next week. Any of you ever say the phrase to yourself? Or hear other people say it. I can't hear myself think. You ever find yourself feeling that way? I can't hear myself think. Not on the inside. Maybe not on the outside. Because it's noise all around. 
One of the great things about regular spiritual practice, about having that place or that opportunity to experience the joy and gift of solitude, not loneliness, but solitude, is not actually that you get to think great new thoughts, but actually that we get to unthink ourselves. We get to move away from all those things that we might be so certain are our plans. And we might reach that place of becoming one of my favorite phrases. I forget where I first heard it. Becoming an I don't know it all. Unthinking ourselves, moving deeper into ourselves beyond the levels of our expertise. But before we can experience the joy of unthinking ourselves, there's a first question that you have to really answer honestly for yourself. Can you trust the darkness? Can you trust the darkness of not having answers? Because the soul grows very often as seeds grow which is first in the dark. There is a darkness and a wonderful, holy and present one, but sometimes still scary, of not knowing the answer. And if we might fully embrace the beauty that we love and do it in our lives, live a more devoted way of being alive, it means very real, very honestly, accepting the darkness of not knowing. The opposite of this I think of as Billy Crystal, in, not in his own life, he seems to be fine, but remember when Harry met Sally? Remember what he does when he opens a new book? He reads the last page. That way, he says, if he dies, before he gets to the end of the book, he'll know how it ended. This is obviously an extreme archetype of a really deeply neurotic person. But you can see that what we might do on our own form of that is really taking from ourselves the experience of grace or pilgrimage. The experience of saying we do not have to be in control all the times and keeping from ourselves the experience of deep humility, which is always necessary if we are really going to observe the shape, form, and consistency, the contour of our lives. When we can do that, really experience humility, we can see how many allies there are all throughout this life in terming in terms of helping us name the beauty that we love. Sometimes it's really, really simple things. I think of a meditation teacher. I've heard this story told over and over and over again in so many different traditions from so many different teachers. But it's about a meditation teacher who entertains a first-time student. And the first-time student is really annoyed. What do you mean? we got to breathe. I'm doing that right now. It's obvious. Come on. I, I want to get to the enlightenment stuff. I want to get to the deep stuff. And... I'm not going to do this to any of you, obviously. I wouldn't recommend you doing it to each other. But the meditation teacher, in a wonderfully wise but also violent way, takes forcefully that meditation novice student's head and holds it underwater until they start thrashing around and finally lets them up and asks that impertinent student, do you think breathing is boring now? That's part of recognizing of recognizing that the simple things sometimes are our best allies, our best allies in coming to understand who we are. And while I wouldn't recommend holding your breath or having someone else do it for you, I think it is important to really listen to those times when we feel stuck or when we feel upset or feel that we are very, very far from the beauty that we love. Perhaps we don't even know how to answer the, uh, even ask the question of ourselves. 
There's a wonderful Quaker way of talking about learning and living through times like these. The Quaker term, the phrase is learning when way closes down. It's a felicitous phrase. Listening when way closes down. Think of perhaps one of the most famous works of literature ever. Dante's The Divine Comedy. It would not have been written if Dante did not listen to when his way closed down. He says it very honestly right in the opening canto of the Divine Comedy. He talks about being lost in the woods and losing his way. Sort of the original midlife crisis is what happens to Dante. But instead of saying, I got to keep forcing myself to go forward, I got to keep doing what I'm doing, he stops and he listens and he trusts. That he can ride himself down in his experience all the way down deep, deep into what he considers to be the inferno. So that only through that kind of following, falling, might he eventually rise up and be acquainted again with the beauty and with the love that is truer and deeper. So on this Yom Kippur day or day before Yom Kippur, I want to encourage all of us to... Remember to practice a little forgiveness at home with ourselves, especially when it comes to trying new things and especially when it comes to remembering our failures. Spread that forgiveness on like butter. We all need it, especially if we're going to understand what makes life really worth living. Churchill put it this way in his wonderfully optimistic kind of phrasing. Churchill said that success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. (laughs) Oh, boy, do I know that well. Success is going from failure to failure without losing your enthusiasm. Part of this is giving ourselves permission to reach our limits, reach what we think might be the end of ourselves, and find perhaps, we can't know at first, but I believe we might, find ourselves knowing that there's something on the other side, something, someone able to catch us when we fall. But it means sometimes getting really scarily close to the edge. And it means that being afraid is okay. One of my favorite guides in knowing and naming life's limits was the Reverend Dr. Forrest Church. More than anything, he gave me a sense that fear was both necessary and ultimately we could transcend it. And that we knew fear very often when we failed, as Forrest did in his life. Forrest Church, as some of you might know, died this past Thursday. And so I've been spending time with that book I showed you before, Love and Death, It really is his last great will and testament and summation of everything that he loved and everyone that he loved and everything that he had to hand off at the last. This past couple days, I've just been rereading those last few chapters, love after death, life after death, saying goodbye. The most personal and yet the most universal of anything that Forrest had ever written. And one phrase, especially relative to today, really sticks with me. Forrest wrote, the one thing that can't be taken away from us, even by death, 
is the love we give away before we go. It cannot be taken away from us because we've already given it. What Forrest is saying and what everyone who dies mindfully as Forrest did is saying to us is again, don't wait. Here and now, in our midst, in the simple things and in the unknown things, the gifts of awakening are here. But particularly what I will remember Forrest for were his teachings to me on the necessity and the nature of joy. I, like many young men with too many years of graduate school education, had confused melancholy with depth. I am so pleased to say they are not the same thing, and I know this in my bones now, but I didn't. And so at two times in my life, one in a time of my own personal turmoil and another in a time of celebration, Forrest blessed me with some teachings on joy. Once when I was really struggling and it was clear my career path, my calling was unfolding, but I was really not enjoying it. I was outwardly doing what I needed to do while inwardly dying. He sat me down and after he listened for a while, he got really direct with me and he said, you cannot do this without joy. You cannot do this without joy. What he's saying is don't neglect the inner springs just to get ahead. And I think that thing he was talking about ministry, but it's true for all of us. Fill in the blank, whatever applies to you in your life. We cannot do this thing without joy. We cannot get ahead and lose our souls. We cannot gain and also forget ourselves entirely. And then in my ordination, a time of celebration in my life, again, recognizing that I still sometimes too much confuse that depression and depth thing. Quoting C.S. Lewis, Forrest said to me very directly in the charge of the minister, allow yourself to be surprised by joy. He says the rotten stuff will take care of itself. <laughs> the bad stuff's going to happen. It's inevitable. So allow yourself to be surprised by joy. Surprised by joy, love, beauty, what we're talking about here today. And then, of course, after we're surprised by it, the invitation is to go and live in alignment with it. Now, Forrest loved traveling stories, not in the sense of someone who sightsees, but the sense of what Forrest really believed about life and what he was and what I think we're all called to be, which is to be a pilgrim, someone who understands that every step on the journey is a meaningful step, even if it's a difficult step. And so I offer this final story in Forrest's memory and honor the love and the life that he shared with me. I've shared some of the story with you before. I call it the toll booth operator's blessing upon my life. It was about four years and four months ago, and I had just learned that I was going to be the new lead minister of this congregation that became Wellsprings, but at that point had no name. And I was excited, and I was scared, and I was a little anxious about what was going to come next. And I was also very sad and had to deal with some disappointments from where I was leaving before. I was sort of betwixt and between and didn't quite know where I was. And what I remember from that time is everything going into boxes, including in some ways my own heart. I wasn't particularly paying attention. And so one day I found myself in the spring 
of 05. And I think it was the Dolphin Expressway in South Florida. They like name things after fish all over the place. So I'm going to say it was the Dolphin Expressway. And actually, this story makes me really sad that I now have an easy pass. Because when you have an easy pass, nothing like this can ever happen again. But at least back then, I didn't. And I stopped to pull up, and I was, I was, you know, staring straight ahead. I just wanted to get to my place, get to where I thought I had to go, get to, get done. And I handed my money to the toll booth taker. And she said with such a hint of sincerity in her voice that I was forced, you know, just felt compelled to turn around and look at her. And she said, how are you today? Just such sincerity. And perhaps because I was surprised by the grace that she extended me, I answered honestly. I said, I'm all over the place. I don't know how I'm doing. And then she said, it's so important to pay attention. Damn straight. (laughs) So important to pay attention. And then she did something so remarkable. I mean, you know, that's a transaction kind of place. You know, you hand your money, you get your change back. And she gave me my change back, but actually she really gave me change back. She reached over. And she touched my arm, held my arm, and looking me square in the eye with complete authenticity and sincerity, she said, you take care of yourself. You take care of yourself. Okay, I will. You do the same. That was the blessing upon me that day. Now, whether that toll booth operator, her call in life was to be a toll booth operator, I don't know. But it sure seemed like it. Because this is the great gift of true spiritual maturity. And from what I could see, she absolutely had it. Is that when we live in this way, truly deepening, truly growing, anything and everything, even the most simple interaction can become the beauty that we love. Anything can become an occasion for blessing. What she blessed me with that day was reminding me that I'm a pilgrim. And she was too. And that's what Forrest brought home to me over and over and over again as he taught me in my life. What Forrest now knows in whatever form in which he now exists is something we don't know quite yet which is that we are all travelers with a destination that until we get there, it is unknown. But if we will awaken while we are here, if we can live and love in the beauty that we do, if we can live and love in the beauty that is this life, then the scenery around us, well, we will actually stop and take notice to it. It won't just be a blur as we go by on the highway. We will stop and we will slow down and we will recognize that the steps we will walk will be at an achievable, not rapid pace. We will recognize that pilgrimage emerges step after step. And as we take our walk with meaning and purpose, we will know as well that we will look around and we will see we're not alone. That we have companions on the journey. That we are there to help them. And they are there to help us. And we will know that great word. What it is to be beloved in this life.
Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Divine Spirit, as Forrest said, you who are in all and a part of all, the great ground of being from which all life arises. May we know this day to be the source of life as much as any day is the source of life. May we know and may we practice with hands and hearts open. Trust that there is beauty even when we cannot see it. Trust that sometimes we need to unlearn what we have learned so that we can open to this life yet again. Trust that sometimes it is only at the edge that we might see the fullness and beauty of our steps. Trust that again and again and again. Love is revealed to us. Life invites us. Being enfolds us. May we say yes to being with the fullness of our own. And in that, become fully every day the beauty that we love. Amen.